welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, where gaming is for everyone. Join us as we expand the boundaries of the gaming community. Hello and welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, episode number 48 for Wednesday, July 27th, 2016. I'm your host, Ken Gagney. I hope you're all surviving the summer heat. I myself just got back from a trip to Seattle where I visited the Living Computer Museum, the EMP Museum, or Experience Music Project, located at the base of the Space Needle. I didn't go there for the music, but rather for the Star Trek exhibit in celebration of the 50th anniversary of the airing of the original series debut on September 8th, 1966. And finally, to the Seattle Pinball Museum. Afterwards, I went over for dinner and board games with two former Polygamer guests, Mike and Tifa Robles. It was great to finally hang out with them in a non-gaming environment, by which I mean PAX East or Polygamer, and just get to know them as peeps. And you know what? They're pretty cool, but I'm not surprised. Also in my journeys, I got to see the new Ghostbusters movie, and I highly recommend it. The first 20 minutes are a little bit of a slog, but it's worth sticking through it, because this is a great film. It's also great not only for its humor, its action, and its reinvention and expansion on Ghostbusters lore, but also for the way it portrays female protagonists. By golly, does this movie pass the Bechdel test. Not only that, but these four women come in a variety of shapes and sizes. They're not eating or dressing based on what they think men want to see. They're not necessarily sexed up. They're just wearing the same Ghostbuster costumes that men would wear. There's no romantic subplot. None of the main characters fall in love with anybody else other than some harmless flirting. And speaking of flirting, there's one character who flirts, has an asymmetrical haircut, and other qualities which puts her out there as pretty not too subtly queer, which is pretty awesome. And yet, it's not even important to the plot. It's just who she is. She can exist as a marginalized voice for no other reason than the fact that there are such people in the world and they deserve to be represented in mainstream media. To that end, I also recommend the new Star Trek movie, which is an improvement upon the previous entry in the series, Star Trek Into Darkness. The new one, Star Trek Beyond, has a subtle indication that a character is gay. If you've been following the headlines around this movie, then you probably already know what I'm talking about. And the way it comes across in the film could have been even less subtle. They had, in fact, filmed a kiss, but it didn't make it into the final cut. Why is it that movies are hesitant to show gay characters when they're all over mainstream television? I don't understand the distinction between those two. Nonetheless, I'm glad to see Hollywood finally making some steps toward a more progressive and inclusive representation of diversity on the silver screen. So if you're looking for some summer cinema, there are two films that I recommend. Before we get into this week's episode of Polygamer, I do need to give an apology to you, the listener. I recorded this episode on Thursday, July 14th, and unbeknownst to me, during the recording, some sort of a technical issue snuck in. Neither I nor my guest heard it until after the show was over, and it was not able to be remedied in post-production. The issue is that about six minutes into the interview, my audio track developed some sort of a crackle. I don't know why it's the same equipment I always use. It's the same equipment I'm using right now to record this intro without any issue whatsoever. I sent it over to my friend Wade Clark, who has done some audio editing for this show before and has also been a guest on my other podcast, IndieCider, and he said there was nothing I could do to remove it. That means the only other option was to re-record my audio, but I spoke with my friend Kevin Savitz, co-host of the Antic podcast, and he said that whenever he has done that, it never comes across sounding natural. And I can understand why. When you're having just half of a conversation and there's nobody there to bounce off, it just doesn't sound right. 
and so although my audio is perfectly legible, I don't necessarily recommend you listen to it with headphones or anything else that might put that noise right in your ear. On the bright side, the podcast interview is 49 minutes, and the issue affects only a total of 5 minutes and 53 seconds of the entire audio, because I don't do most of the talking. That is the format I use for Polygamer. I let my guests do all the talking. So I hope you'll consider it a minimal and bearable issue, and one that will not recur, because I'm going to make sure that this doesn't happen in future episodes of Polygamer. This is episode number 48. We've made it this far without any significant issues. That's two years. The podcast, Polygamer, turns two years old this month when Matt Kahn was the very first guest, he being the founder of GamerX. I'm looking forward to many more years of this podcast, and if you want to leave a review on iTunes to encourage me to do so and also to help other people to find it, that would be great. I want to do everything I can to promote equality and diversity in gaming, and your listenership is actually a really important part to that. So feel free to hit me up at polygamer.net if you want to email me or follow me on Twitter at GameBits where I'm always very responsive to any suggestions you might have. Thank you to all my guests in the first two years of Polygamer. Thank you to you, my listeners, in the first two years. And if this is your first time listening, thank you for listening to this episode. Enjoy. Today we're taking an academic look at the design of video games with Professor Jillian Smith. Hello, Jillian. Hello. How are you today? I am doing well. How are you? Fine, thank you. So you are an assistant professor in the game design program at Northeastern University right here in Boston, Massachusetts. Is that correct? Yes, I am. Exciting. How long have you been there? Uh, I just finished my fourth year there. Four years. Wow. Yeah. Has your role changed in that time? Uh, not a huge amount. It's sort of it's moved around, so I'm actually uh, jointly appointed between two different departments, between art and design and computer science. And I've recently been doing a little more work on the on the art and design side of things. What is it that you teach at Northeastern? Uh, so I teach a combination of design and technically oriented game classes. So um, one of the classes that I I teach is game artificial intelligence, uh, which is mostly for computer science students. Um, and that's sort of a, a deep technical dive down into the algorithms that go into making artificial life in games. And then I also teach design-oriented classes, so I have one course called Rapid Idea Prototyping, where students make a game every day. Every day? Every day. Every class period. For an entire semester? For an entire semester. So one game per student per day per semester. That, that must be thousands well, per, of games. Per class, right? So two, either two or three per week, depending on how it's scheduled. Okay. Um, but still, yeah, it's a 15-week semester, so students, each student makes 30 games. And what happens to all these games after they're done? Most of them probably go in the garbage. Um, part of the goal of the class is to get students um, thinking about how to prototype games very quickly. Um, and sort of cycle them through a lot of different ideas so they can get, you know, there's, there's this thought in, in design that like it just takes a lot of practice to get to being good at design. And so you should do a lot of it and, and cycle through and get some of the garbage out early. right? So, so a lot of the games probably just go straight to the trash because they're not very good. And the students know that coming in, that they'll make some not good games. Some of the games then go on to be their um, semester-long projects, so they take a little bit more time to polish them and hopefully have something ready for a portfolio. And some of them turn into ideas that they'll explore in future classes or outside the classroom. So this is almost like a NaNoWriMo for games. The goal is to produce quantity, not necessarily quality. 
Yeah, I mean, we we have conversations and and critique on you know how could how could you improve this game, and students will reflect on each game that they've made and say this is what I liked about what I did and this is what I didn't like about what I did. Uh, but yeah, a lot of the goal is get them get them comfortable with producing quickly. Uh, and one way to do that is to enforce producing quantity. You said that most of your students are computer science students. Does Northeastern have any sort of a interdisciplinary media or game design program? We do. So actually the entire program is an interdisciplinary program. We actually have several majors. One is computer science focused, and that's a, a Bachelor of Science in Computer Science and Game Design. There's also an art-focused uh, degree, which is a Bachelor of Fine Art in Games. And then we have several other interdisciplinary degrees sort of between arts and computer science in, in different flavors. So students can really get a good mix. The faculty have an interdisciplinary background as well, and so we have people in computer science, game design. Um, we work with several faculty from industry uh, as adjuncts. We have, and we have some people with like a psychology background as well. It seems to me that Northeastern is remarkably supportive of gaming students and community because they, over the years, have supported and hosted game jams. Uh, Anita Sarkeesian, the Women in Games group. There's a lot going on for gamers at Northeastern. Yeah, there there really is, um, and it's been it's been very nice. Uh, of being able to be a part of that. Was it that supportive when you joined, or is this all thanks to you? <laughs> it's certainly not all thanks <laughs> to you. Um, the program has grown quite a bit since since I joined. I joined along with uh, several other faculty at the same time, and we sort of grew up uh, a program together. And then you know, there's been people who've come in, like Susan Gold, um, who helped found the Global Game Jam. She's been a huge force behind trying to have really a big presence and a big site for the Global Game Jam at Northeastern. Um, but really a huge amount of it, I think, is also driven by the students. You know, the students have their own game development club. They meet every week. They host their own game jams. They have their own game critique sessions. They run tutorials for each other on how to use Unity and other game engines. So there's, there's a very nice student-run community there as well. Have you participated in one of Northeastern's game jams yourself? Have I? Are you allowed as a professor? Oh, I'm allowed. Um, so for the for the game jams, when we've done um, when we've done the global game jam, I've participated as a mentor. My life is not currently in a place where spending forty eight hours without sleep to make a game is a thing that I want to be doing. But I celebrate other people being able to do that. The game jam that I probably participated in most recently is actually one that wasn't affiliated with Northeastern, but I, I encouraged my students in my game AI class to participate in, uh, which is the procedural content generation jam. And that is an online global jam that's run by Michael Cook, who is at Falmouth University. And that is a jam where people spend a week uh, sort of hanging out on Twitter together making games and tools and weird experimental art things that are procedurally generated. So let's talk about that, because you recently published a paper on that subject. What, for those who don't know, is procedural generation? Uh, so procedural generation, you know, this is, you know, we're academics, so we like to have contradictory definitions for things sometimes, but I would say the the definition that I like the most is having a algorithm create something for a game that would normally be created by a human. 
Um, so it might be uh, like art assets for a game. Maybe those are procedurally generated. And we actually see this a lot in like big AAA titles, quad A titles, or however many A's we're using for them these days. Oftentimes when you see you know, trees in your 3D virtual environment that you're running around, um, those trees are usually procedurally generated these days. There's a, a program called Speed Tree that will with some artist guidance, create these sort of beautiful, realistic-looking trees. Um, no one really makes trees by hand anymore. <clears throat> There's also procedurally generated levels, right? These have become really popular in games like Spelunky, uh, other roguelike games where the computer creates uh, level entire level environments that the player is exploring so that every time they load up the game, they get a different level. And then there's some experimental research in procedurally generated games. Right? You know, can we have a computer create from scratch an entire game that a person could play? So when something is procedurally generated, does that mean that every player has a different experience with that thing? Not always. So an interesting example might be, so No Man's Sky is a game that's coming out that everyone's super excited about where everything is procedurally generated, right? Um, and I think the idea behind No Man's Sky is supposed to be that everyone will see different content because they'll be sort of inserted into the universe in different places. But the content is actually sort of all available to all players. If you could imagine somehow exploring the entire galaxy yourself, like there is the same stuff kind of there. It just gets generated on the fly instead of needing to be stored in memory. There's also a community of people um, who make what are called demo scenes, uh, where these are entirely, they're not random in any way, like, Everyone who loads up a demo scene will see will usually see exactly the same thing, but the the craft of creating it is via code rather than via like making three D models in Maya and then putting them into some game engine. Like it's it's all done in code. And then there are some games where yeah, the goal is that every player sees something different every single time. Um, and roguelikes especially really depend on that, right? Because there's a sense that when you die in a roguelike, that's it. You'll never see the thing that you just saw ever again. You'll see something that looks pretty similar, um, but it won't be exactly the same experience each time you load up the game. So people use it for different reasons. So it partly depends on where the code is being run. For example, you mentioned Speed Tree, and it looks like this algorithm was used in Star Wars Episode Seven: The Force Awakens, where the Millennium Falcon is crashing into Starkiller Base, and it crashes through all those trees. Those trees were procedurally generated. There was no artist who individually inserted each tree into the landscape. Well, in that case, it's... I, so I don't know about Star Wars, like... I, I know things about Star Wars. Um, but I don't know, <laughs> like, how Speed Tree was used in Star Wars specifically. But... What I would imagine happened um, in that sort of production pipeline was an artist interacted with the speed tree software to create the trees and to be able to create trees in the style that they wanted, right? Because um, you can tell speed tree, like, make a palm tree, make a birch tree, make an ash tree, make a an alien tree, and, you know, I'll provide all of the textures, just make it sort of look like a tree. Uh, and then the software creates 
sort of the branch structure and all of the like finicky little things that you would never really want to edit by hand. And then maybe an artist still says, you know, put draw me a forest over here, right? And the computer will take all of the trees that you've just sort of helped it make and sort of scatter them around according to certain parameters. And then you can say, no, make me a dense forest, make me a, a sparse forest. That's a really, to me, a really exciting kind of procedural generation is where a human and a computer are kind of interacting to, cr- to create the final piece. But although trees may not be necessarily all that exciting, this is not a consumer-grade product. Looking at their website, speedtree.com, it looks like their packages go anywhere from $900 to $5,000. Yeah, Speedtree is um, sort of the industry standard way to make trees for things. <laughs> But there is, so yeah, like a lot of industry standard software, it, it can be very, very expensive, right? Um, you know, you'll also, if you're, if you're getting 3D modeling software like Maya or Max, you'll also be paying a huge amount for it if you're not eligible for some like discounted student rate. But there's also you know, a large procedural generation community that um, making their own things on the fly, um, yeah, the the indie development community especially has a there's a, a piece of that that's really interested in procedural content generation and they'll typically craft their own algorithms by hand as part of their game design process so it's it's kind of a an exploding area right now with with everything from like handcrafted algorithm that will be run one time for one game in one specific like instance uh, that's written by one person up through like speed tree software, right? And it's all procedural generation uh, in my mind because it's all about how do we get the computer taking some of the the creative work, right, and and doing some of the creative work uh, either in place of a human or augmenting a human. Another example you gave besides Speedtree was Rogue, which was one of the games I grew up playing on my Apple II computer. I, I mean, there are, there are lots of talk about roguelikes nowadays, but there's nothing more roguelike than Rogue itself. I assume you've played the original. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was a great game, top-down, text-based, dungeon crawler. All the monsters and items are represented with ASCII characters, and when you die, you're permanently dead, permadeath, and you start over with a whole new dungeon. Now, why is that called procedural generation instead of random generation? Well, so, I mean, some people maybe would use the terms interchangeably. I like to separate them out because even though there's randomness in the process of creating it, right, like... You know, at some point, the the software in there is like rolling virtual dice, saying how many monsters, where should I put the monsters, right? There's still an amount of of directedness that the designer of the algorithm has over what's being created, and there's still sort of a procedure that's being followed, right? Something I've been thinking a lot about recently is how how do how does the person who's designing the algorithm um, the like the procedural algorithm to create content in a game think about what it means to be like a piece of content right so the the person who has to write the procedural generation system for rogue um or any roguelike game is going to be thinking through things in their head like well you know what is a dungeon right well a dungeon has a bunch of rooms in it and those rooms are separated by walls um, and each room has monsters and treasure and potions and, you know, 
what's a good balance, right? How many potions should there be per monster, maybe? Or what sort of reward should we be getting? Should should people mostly be getting high reward items? Should they mostly be getting low reward items? Does that change over the course of the game? Um, should high reward be sort of a low probability but purely random? Or should high reward only come after defeating a really difficult monster? So there's a lot of very conscious decisions that go into producing these algorithms um, that take it beyond pure randomness, right? In in my mind, pure randomness would be, I guess, something a little bit closer to randomly pick a sprite per tile, <laughs> right? Which would typically create unplayable games. So I, I like to use the term procedural generation for it sort of as a reminder that there there is some direction to the process. Like, it's not just random everything. Like, decisions are made, um, priorities are put in place, um, definitions are, are declared, right? There's, there's, there's some sort of overall vision that, that is, is being followed. Yeah, there are a lot of parameters and constraints, so that even though the ultimate product may be random it's still very intentional as well yes yes that's a good that's a much shorter better way of putting it <laughs> i don't know about that i'm not the professor or i actually am one but not with a phd <laughs> is procedural generation a cop-out for designers who don't want to create every level and they just want to let the computer do it you know i think and I, i've talked to some people who who will say yes right the and cop-out has a negative connotation associated true with it. Um, but there, there is a sense from some people that, you know, especially software developers who want to make their own games, but maybe they don't have an art background, um, which in my experience actually frequently comes down to, I don't know how to draw, therefore I can't be an artist, which I have a whole separate side rant if you want about how that's wrong. But yeah, frequent, frequently it does come down to, you know, I'm one person making a game I don't want to or I don't feel capable of creating the environment art for the game. Um, so I'll have the computer do it, right? I know how to program, so I'll tell the computer how to how to put stuff together instead. Um, or maybe I don't have time to design, you know, a hundred levels for my game and for whatever reason I've decided a hundred levels is how many levels my game should have, so I'll have the computer do it. Um... I think what gets interesting is that then um, I think a lot of people start out with that kind of opinion, right? The, that it'll be, e maybe it'll be easier somehow, but then they find it kind of just shifts the burden, right? Like now, instead of spending all of your time painstakingly handcrafting levels, um, you're spending all of your time painstakingly handcrafting your algorithm to make sure it always produces levels that you think are acceptable. <laughs> So I, I think there's an interesting tension there. The way I've heard some designers put it is that they want to create a game that they can play and which still will surprise them. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really big motivator and, and a, a really big reason why I got interested in this kind of research in the first place. I think everyone who's made a procedural generator, myself included, um, reaches a point fairly early on where they just like hitting the random button over and over again. Right? And, and it's just like really exciting to see how the preconceptions that you had when you were crafting the algorithm of, you know, what does it mean to be a, a platformer level? Or what does it mean to be a, 
a tree or what does it mean to be, I don't know, a, a, a character in a game if you're making a character generator. And then you hit the random button and you're like, oh, I didn't really think that I was telling the computer to make something like that, um, but that's cool. Or like, and that's terrible. I need to figure out a way to make it not do that. Yeah, I, I think definitely that sort of the joy of being surprised by what the machine does is interesting. So the reason this topic comes up between you and me now is because you recently published a paper on the politics and feminism of procedural generation. Is that sort of a, a broad overview? Is that correct? Yeah, I think that's a, an accurate assessment of what we wrote. Your website emphasizes that this is an area of focus for you in your research. You got your PhD in computer science, artificial intelligence, and game design, and now you are continuing your research into procedural content generation for games, computational crafting, and issues surrounding feminism and social justice in technology and game design. So how does feminism and social justice come into procedural generation? And I realize that I basically just asked you to read your dissertation to me. <laughs> but if you can give us sort of an abstract. Sure. Well, so thankfully this wasn't my dissertation. Um, this is an area that I, I started getting really interested in in the last, um, in the last couple of years. Yeah, so, and so I was, I was saying earlier there's, there's a set of commitments that are made by the creator of a procedural system, right? And, and in the example of Rogue, it was things like, you know, what is a dungeon? There are walls, there are enemies, there are potions. I think one thing that's interesting to me is, especially when it comes to creating, creating procedural systems that are around, that are around like creating, maybe creating avatars or NPCs for games, um, or maybe creating content that is about sort of the social context of the world, like maybe making making quests or or particular kinds of environments where we still have all of these biases coming in as as human creators of these algorithms. And I'm interested in looking at how these biases might get reflected in these creative algorithms that we're writing and then how that gets sort of cashed out in what is being made. Um, so let me try giving you a concrete example. Yeah, please. Maybe a, a couple of concrete examples. So one might be, let's say you're making a, a character creation system, right? And, and in some ways you can view character creation systems as procedural, right? There's uh, a bunch of different components for what it means to be a character, uh, a bunch of different parameters that you can fiddle with um, sort of to your heart's content. Um, Mass Effect especially has, you know, when you make your character, there's there's all of these sliders for, like, face width and, like, how big is the bridge of your nose and how long is your nose and how far does your nose come out? And there's all of these different sliders that you can use to tweak to get, like, the perfect facial structure for your character. And then there's sort of binary decisions that you make up front, right? Like, the first thing you decide... Uh, frequently as well, are you playing a male or a female character? Um, you know, what skin color does that character have? And then you can go into sort of facial structure type stuff. And and there are assumptions that are baked like about what it means to be a person in the game world, right? That are baked into offering players those choices, right? It assumes that the player is comfortable with identifying as either male or female as their character in the world. Um, and and maybe it also assumes that the that the game world story says there are only male and female characters. 
so yeah, so there's a, a, a game called Redshirt, um, which is a Star Trek reference. Uh, it's made by Me Too at the Tiniest Shark. Um, and this is a game where uh, I know that Me Too spent a lot of time being very conscious about the kinds of characters that players could make for the world. So they can make um, sort of male and female human-like characters, and then there's another race that doesn't have a gender. Um, and then there's yet another race where like the I think there's something like the social story for that race is that it's a matriarchal society and there's sliders for sort of instead of picking a boolean variable of like are you a man or a woman you can say like how male or female are you when you when you create your character and so that's a, a conscious choice that, that the developers of that game made around what it means to be a person, right? Instead of saying, like, no, you must be male or no, you must be female, you can... They sort of parameterize gender in an interesting way. They say, you know, can can we have a broader swath of characters that could be represented in this game? A different example that maybe isn't so much about characters um, is in a game generation system. So I mentioned Michael Cook earlier as he's the guy who's behind the procedural content generation game jam. Mike Cook has a game generator that makes um, sort of tiny little, almost arcade-style games, uh, and he has a version called a Rogue Dream where uh, it starts out by saying, by giving the user a prompt, like, last night I dreamed I was a blank um, and you type in, like, I dreamed I was a cat, right? And then the system will make a little game that is about cats. And the way that it does this is it uses Google autocomplete. So if you type into Google, like, uh, why do cats like, um, right now, Google tells me uh, cats like catnip, cats like milk, cats like boxes, and cats like fish, Right? And so the system will say, oh, cats like milk. Okay, well, milk is what you're trying to collect in the game. And if you type in why do cats hate, um, Google says cats hate water, cucumbers, dogs, and the cur. I actually didn't know that cats hate cucumbers. So it'll take one of these words, right? And, oh, cats hate dogs. Well, the dog is now the enemy in the game, right? And so, and then it goes out to, I think, Google Image Search and, like, grabs pictures of dogs and grabs pictures of milk and grabs pictures of cats, and then makes a game where, like, uh, now, like, as soon as you hit enter and you tell it that this is a game about being a cat, you can say, like, now I'm a cat and I'm trying to collect all of the milk and avoid all of the dogs. And the cucumbers. Or the cucumbers. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Dogs like cows, so maybe the dogs are in the cows. I don't know. Um, but it makes these, these sort of little games and it's kind of a fun little system to play with right and it, and it gets really exciting and then all of a sudden one day it was like huh someone typed like priest into my game right and google autocomplete is sort of the the height of the the priest's child abuse in the catholic church scandal had some slightly less good things to say right and you know it was wider priests like and it would fill things in with stuff like little boys right? Um, or if you type in, you know, why do women like, is like, why do women like tall men, older men, bad boys? Why do women, but if you leave out like, it's, you know, why do women moan? Why do women cheat? Uh, so the, there's a certain amount of bias that goes into Google's autocomplete based on what, um, 
like what other people in the world are searching for, right? And then that bias gets baked into the algorithm that's being used to make this, this game. And I, I think it's really interesting to think about how do you how do you cope with with that as a developer, and and how do we think through some of these issues of where bias intersect algorithms and intersect games? But how do you make sure that as these games are learning, they are learning the right things? Like, how could somebody not just sort of Google bomb and make your game think that cats hate marshmallows? <laughs> I mean. They could potentially, right? Like if there was a, I guess if there was a really concerted effort on the internet to get Google to think that cats hate marshmallows, now all of a sudden your game would say cats hate marshmallows, right? And and I think that's one of the, and I don't I don't have an answer for like how do you fix the problem. I guess what I'm offering is a way to think through some of these questions and point out that some of these questions exist, right? Um, I know Mike, after talking to him, and, and Mike is an awesome guy, right? Mike, Mike was originally thinking, you I have a technical problem, right? Which is I want people to be able to write in whatever they want to write and be able to respond to it. What's a way that I can do that? I can use Google, right? Google knows everything about everything. So, And if I wanted to know what cats like and hate, I'd go to Google without realizing that he would also sort of perceptually filter if he saw things that just didn't make any kind of sense, right? If, if he saw, you know, why do cats hate marshmallows, maybe he would start questioning the accuracy of the system, and I, I would actually question that why do cats hate cucumbers, because I didn't really know that much about that. But there, there is this idea that he had in his mind of, like, well, Google is ground truth about the world, right? Whatever Google says goes. And as humans, I think a lot of us kind of do that as well. Um, but really what Google autocomplete is telling you isn't what's ground truth about the world. It's what everyone thinks could be true about the world filtered by some internal algorithm that Google has that they don't release details about to remove certain kinds of content, right? Like I think Google has said that because there was this big, uh, like faux internet scandal, right? Around, around, like, is Google trying to promote Hillary Clinton by saying that, uh, by, like, removing certain search results in autocomplete for her, but not removing them for other people? Um, And Google came out, I think, and were basically saying, no, for, basically, for every human we try to remove, like, every public figure we try to remove certain things about them. Um, So Google has its own internal um, system that it uses to filter down uh, what happens in autocomplete. I, I guess what I what I want to be thinking about more in the next few years and what I was writing about in that article, uh, like these biases are things that emerge in our algorithms. Sometimes they're intentionally put there, frequently they're not intentionally put there. But just in the same way that when, as humans, we create art out in the world and, and we create content for games, we come in with our own biases um, when we create procedural systems that create art, we come in with our own biases and the biases of whatever like underlying systems we're using, right? And I and I think that's a a difficult thing to think through and a, a, a difficult set of problems to solve because it's not like there's one like ground truth morality that every game should reflect necessarily. If you want 
your character creation system to say, you know, I want only male or female characters and there's nothing in between, that's fine, as long as that's a deliberate decision that you're making. It's where we start to assume that, you know, that just is the way that the world is and there's nothing else that we might want to be able to express that I think it becomes more problematic. Maybe you can help clear up a misconception of my own or a bias, which is I tend to avoid procedurally generated games because what really drives me and what really engages me in video games nowadays is narrative. Games like Gone Home or Oxenfree or Life is Strange or Firewatch. And those stories are very intentionally crafted. There's a lot of narrative there. And I, I, I'm i assuming that you don't get that level of narrative from a procedurally generated game. Is that true? Well, so there's different kinds of narratives, I guess. Um, so, yeah, it's true that Gone Home... I mean, Gone Home is probably one of my favorite games of all time. It was certainly the first game that made me cry. And it's that is a game that, with the way that we do procedural generation now, wouldn't be made, right? There's, there's too much, like, personal story that goes into it. There's too much that's, like, super finely crafted and honed. And that isn't a common aesthetic in procedural games, or, or games with procedural generation in them. You know, I went to an interesting talk, and this is now several years ago. Um, so there was a game, Inside the Starfield Sky. Have you heard of that game? What's the name of it? Inside the Starfield Sky? No, it's definitely not familiar to me. And so it was one of Jason Rohrer's games. Um, the the in like the indie game designer. He also did Passage, which is he's maybe more famous for. That one I know. Okay. Um, so Inside of Starfield Sky is, uh, he describes it as an infinite recursive tactical shooter um, for one player. And the way that the game works is um, you're, you're flying around your little spaceship in your little sort of maze-like level, um, and when you shoot an object, you can then go inside it, and that object is itself another level. Um, so, like, all of the little enemy things sort of are, are like vaguely square shaped and then they become levels of their own uh, and then inside those there's more little enemies and they become levels of their own or if you collect an object you can go into that uh, sort of level and everything um, in Inside of Starfield Sky is procedurally generated so like I, I guess when you enter a level I'm actually not totally sure how like technically how it's done, but like when you enter a level, new enemies are generated. And then when you get an enemy, like it generates the level off of that enemy and then you kind of keep going. It is a very weird recursive game that's a little confusing to play at first, but like kind of cool. I enjoy it, certainly. Uh, the the talk that I went to at GDC that he gave uh, when people were asking him, you know what? how did you come up with this idea for Inside of Starfield Sky? Um, like, it's so weird, like, it's, but it's so cool. Like, what, what were you thinking? And he said that the sense that he was trying to capture in the game is that feeling where, um, like, you go down a stack of too many things. Like, you have a particular goal, like, oh, I'm thirsty, right? Uh, but right now I'm in my office and I need to be able to get to the kitchen to get a glass of water. And on the way, you know, I pass my baby's room and 
uh, that reminds me that I really need to do his laundry. And so I grab the laundry and I go downstairs. But on my way downstairs, I remember that I need to grab some other things. And like soon it's five minutes in and I've forgotten about getting the glass of water. But I'm like well into like watching an episode of Star Trek. right? Because somehow along the way, like I got myself distracted and I remembered all these other things that were going on in my life. Um, and he said that he wanted to try to capture that kind of feeling, right, of... I have a particular goal that I'm trying to reach. To be able to get to that goal, I need to do all of these other sub-goals. Um, and in doing those other sub-goals, I'll get sidetracked and, and go down other passages. And he wanted to be able to create an environment where people could explore um, in that kind of way, um, which is why he's got this sort of like recursive uh, thing where maybe you do start out with a high-level goal in your first level, but by the time you get down into your like fifth layer of of like having gone inside something, that goal is often now long forgotten. So I think there are certain, I guess to get back to your question about like narrative in games and finely crafted uh, games and how that intersects with procedural generation, I think it's, a, it's that procedural generation can let you express different kinds of narratives and different kinds of ideas that maybe are harder to express um, with purely handcrafted content, right? I'm not sure how I would make the game about like forgetting your overall goal um, and setting new goals for yourself over and over again um, at the level of sort of handcrafted fidelity of gone home without having some kind of procedural system to support it. So in lieu of narrative, the way that social justice and feminism can manifest itself in a procedurally generated game is by ensuring that the designer provided that procedural system with enough data and options to draw from to represent an inclusive world. Is that roughly accurate? Yeah, I think I think that's that's accurate. And I think I wanna I wanna also qualify it with that presents an inclusive world that reflects the goals that the designer has. Right? So a lot of the time I feel like what we hear is um as sort of an argument against this kind of thing is, well, you know, the the narrative of this world, you know, isn't about race or it isn't about gender. You know, it's a it's a science fiction future where everyone's colorblind, right? And so and so it shouldn't need to treat race in any particular way. While I personally don't agree with that statement necessarily, um, I think what I what I want to get people thinking about when it comes to feminism and social justice meets procedurality is that there's a conscious choice that's being made there, right? And it, and it doesn't need to be, I guess it's, it's not that all games need to be a certain way and have sort of the same underlying sense of social justice and, and systems, but the systems are interesting to think about and conscious decisions can be made about them, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think so. So one of the examples that was most recently in the news back in April was the Steam game Rust, which I'm sure you're right. familiar with. Yeah, so a lot of players are looking for a verisimilitude in their games. They want it to be more realistic. And Rust said, great, we are going to randomly assign you your gender and race, just like in real life. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people did not like that. They did not like the agency being removed to make those decisions themselves. Yeah. But this is an example of procedural generation, is that correct? Yeah, and it's certainly an example of, of procedurality, right, where 
Um, and yeah, procedural generation in the sense that your character is randomly created for you when you start. Yeah, I thought that was a, a really fascinating example that does push up against what do we expect from games uh, and what do we mean when we say we want realism, right? We will spend a lot of time focusing on making realistic uh, like shooters, for example, um, though I kind of question how realistic some of them are because you don't actually have the same sense of fear that I imagine you would have in real life, Um or at least that I imagine I would have in real life. Right. But yeah, there's a, there's a sense of, there's like a disconnect between we say we want more realism. Um, and then when realism is pushed upon us, we're like, no, but it's also for fun. Right. And I want to be able to make certain choices myself. And then there's the question of, well, who is it? Like if the choice is made for you, who is it fun for? Right. So you're thinking about audience and, and who your expected audience is. But yeah, I, I think Rust was a Rust was fascinating to me to suddenly see a lot of people who've always been able to play as the character that they want to be able to play as being told no, you need to play as a different character, and we'll we'll decide it for you. You don't get to have any choice. Do you think that procedural generation comes at the cost of agency naturally, as in the case of Rust, or can we balance the two? I think we can balance the two. I think there's a lot of open questions about how we balance them. But I guess I have I have faith that we can. I think procedural generation, right now, I mean, we're just starting to have these kinds of conversations, right? And obviously social justice conversations have been, have been being had for, like, forever, right? Um, but in the context of games, um, it's, it's really early days. And so I, I don't feel comfortable committing to the idea that like procedural generation will never be able to, uh, like we'll never be able to find, find the middle ground. But I do think it's going to take, take work to figure out what that ground is and, and how to balance things. And I think it starts by figuring out how to model these more complicated systems that we may want to model in our games without everything being authored by hand. Um, so one thing to think about is the flip side, right? In a, in a purely handcrafted um, world, right? So say like Dragon Age um, or really almost any role-playing game. Sure. Um, if you want to be able to support a large diversity of player character types, right? Um, and right now, usually it's sort of male, female, profession, race. If you want to be able to support meaningful choices that matter to, um, that are based on and have impact on the player's identity, um, you need to handcraft all of that, right? And maybe, maybe you decide that you don't want the player's identity to matter, um, but if you want to be the person who makes the game where the player's identity does matter, and it matters whether you chose um, like what gender identity you assign your character, and it matters what race you assign your character, and you want other characters in the world to interact with you in a reasonable way based on that. Like if that's the game you want to make, right now you're looking at authoring massive amounts of dialogue to special case every single interaction that could happen along the way, right? And that gets to be too much, too fast for a lot of people and for a lot of studios. And, and this is why you hear the often quite reasonable 
sometimes not reasonable, I think, but often reasonable argument from studios where they say, well, why didn't you make a female playable character? Or why didn't you make more races available? And they're like, it takes resources, right? Like we need to like actually create those art assets. We need to create the lines of dialogue. We need to bring in another voice actor. We need to do all of these, th- these things. Like that's expensive. And like legitimately it is expensive, <laughs> right? Um, and it and it becomes a question of priorities for the for the studios. You know, do we want to spend the money on on these different things or do we want to spend our money in a different place? One thing that I hope one day, we're not there yet, but one day procedural generation would be able to help with is to offset that kind of expense and make it so that people can make the kinds of games they want to make that support um, a diverse cast of players and a diverse cast of characters in meaningful ways. And I think that is about what, that is sort of what agency means, right? Is is feeling like your choices have impact in the world and impact back on you. And I would say that right now, for some players, the agency isn't there already. And maybe procedural generation could eventually help. So this is not a case of games having to be either procedurally generated or not. It's going to be integrated and complementary to the sorts of games that we're already familiar with. Oh, absolutely. I th- I think we'll see that. I and mean, I think just like, you know, in, in role-playing games, a lot of the time the, the trees are generated by speed tree, right? I think maybe eventually uh, one future might be the, like, the social, the underlying social simulation is procedurally handled. Um, and there's like some software you can get that you can then tweak uh, to handle whatever kind of social simulation you want, and there'll be procedural support for that. I think, and, and I have some colleagues who are doing research in that kind of area. I think it's a long way out, but yeah, I do think eventually some of this will get integrated back into non-procedural games. Because one of the reasons No Man's Sky is so highly anticipated is because it is such a expansive universe that players will be exploring, and there's just no way to expect a single designer to create such a universe in their own lifetime. They they need the assistance of procedural generation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm really excited to see how No Man's Sky has done this because I know they've been putting in a huge amount of effort into making sure that the sort of all of the worlds are still beautifully crafted. Um, they're just beautifully crafted algorithmically, right? Instead of beautifully crafted painstakingly by hand. Well, something to look forward to when it comes out next month. I know so soon. So, wow. So we could talk about procedural generation all day long. Maybe we should instead just write an algorithm to create podcasts for us. <laughs> but is there, do you have any sort of a closing notes or summation that you wish to share with our listeners? Um, I guess so. I I think one thing is, you know, we've spent some time during this podcast talking about, and maybe this is what we were just saying, talking about, like, there's a a notion of procedural games and non-procedural games. And I think, I do think that these are going to start getting integrated in more. Like, there's games with a, with a, like a procedural aesthetic, I guess, and, and those will always be around. But there is a lot of procedurality happening in in games that people wouldn't identify as having sort of procedural generation in them i guess another thing to think about is i think a lot of the time when i talk to students especially they say you know i'm really interested in procedural content generation and procedural design but like i don't really know where to start and i feel like you know there's this sort of mystery about how like how to make games like this 
Um, and I think one thing that may be interesting to, to listen is if any of them are, are interested in designing their own games or are currently game designers and have been interested in procedural generation. Um, there are some resources online that are good to go to to learn sort of how do people do procedural generation already and learn a little bit more about this. So the Mike Cook's Proc Jam is, I think, totally worth checking out. It's going to be running again this... So end of October, beginning of November there's the procedural generation jam and there's also a couple of years it's this will be its third year running um so if people are interested in sort of what's something that can be done on an individual scale the the procedural generation jam uh page which is on itch.io um i can send you a link later if you want can um has some has some cool resources out there for for people to be able to get started and a, a really nice Twitter community and it's kind of a fun relaxed place to learn a little bit about procedural generation. I think one of the ways that procedural generation is going to improve over time and and in part get better at um, addressing some of these social justice issues is by having a more diverse set of people participating in it. And so one thing I really care about is is trying to let people know how they themselves can get involved if this sounds interesting. Like, you don't need a PhD in computer science to make a little generative thingy. Um, you don't even necessarily need to know how to code to make a little generative thingy. Like, you could make a procedural card game, right, that has some random, random choices that are being made uh, if you wanted to. Excellent. We'll include links to all those resources in the show notes found at polygamer.net. We'll also include links to where to find you online, Jillian. Can you remind us where that would be? Uh, yes, I am at uh, www.socath.com. That's S-O-K-A-T-H.com. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter at uh, Jillian M. Smith. That's Jillian with a G, I-L-L-I-A-N, M. Smith. And also on your website, we can find out not only more about procedural generation, but also quilting. Yes, yes. Another one of your many passions. Yes. I'm, I, I actually, so some of it is actually procedural generation of quilts. So. <laughs> and some of it is quite intentional. Women of the Periodic Table, which you did in collaboration with our mutual friend, Maya Weinstock. Yes. Excellent. So just to be clear, you and I first met at Game Loop 2014 which is a Boston-based annual meeting of local developers. It's an unconference. And then we bumped into each other again a few months later when Anita Sarkeesian came to Harvard University. Yeah. And so I, I think these two things uh, pretty much classify us as either Boston, as Boston game developers or social justice warriors or some combination of the two. I'm cool with being both. Yeah, I, I wouldn't call myself a developer, but obviously I'm very much keen on the craft, both on this podcast and my other podcast, IndieSider. But yeah, I, I love what you're doing on your website. I love bumping into you. I know that your time is much more limited these days, but <laughs> I, I hope that we see you at the local game scene fairly soon. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm getting excited to, to start getting back into things. So. Great. Maybe I'll see you next month at Game Loop. Yeah, I'm, I'm really hoping to be able to go to Game Loop. Great. Thanks so much, Jillian. I'll see you there. Thank you. This has been Polygamer, a GameBits production. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback at polygamer.net.
um, with computer science. Oh, that's my dog. What kind of dog? Uh, I have a pit bull mix. She's a rescue. Oh, she sounds adorable. She is super adorable. Yeah, hi. How are we doing? Am I going to kick you out or are you going to stay? You're going to stay for now? Okay, you do that again. I'm kicking you out. 